As we've been journeying through the Gospel of Luke, we, we, we realize that there was this opportunity to pause and to dive into Jesus' teachings on money because there are four stories here at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is teaching his apprentices about money. Now, why the series on money? Well, the series is part of our ongoing journey to become a people apprentice to Jesus. And I know that the Aldergrove campus here uh, was planted kind of already as we're kind of midway through this journey. So there's some series that some of you, if you are brand new to the campus, um, you've missed out on in the last number of years. But I hope as the years go on, you'll hear similar themes um, as we continue to dive into the basics, the essentials of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple. So we've done whole series on uh, community, uh, on prayer, on scripture, on confession and repentance, uh, on spiritual warfare, and on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then we've done some uh, kind of more, we've done some series on some more complex topics, uh, like following Jesus when it comes to uh, topics like sexuality, gender, the digital age, our polarized age, uh, Jesus' heart for women and leadership. And so, and so it dawned on us, we cannot do all those series and explore all those topics and never talk about money, right? We just cannot do that. And it's, and it's about time we tackled the subject of money, especially when Jesus has so much to say about the topic of money and cared deeply about his disciples and their relationship to money. And so for, for these four weeks, I hope that you and I will experience a freedom, a generosity, a joy that just kind of bubbles up uh, in us as we learn to follow Jesus when it comes to money. And um, there is rarely, uh, um, you know, uh, such a relevant series where all of us are involved in this. Like, all of us continue to try to sort out our relationship with money. And so this impacts each one of us. Now, this series is going to be uh, anchored in the teachings of Jesus and the Gospel of Luke, but I also want to share two books that have helped me uh, on the journey and have influenced me in preparation for the series. And so um, I know that um, uh, John and Kevin and uh, Ron, um, that all of us have been, uh, been reading these resources, so I offer two of them to you. Hopefully they, they'll help, they're helpful if you'd like to do some further reading. One is called God and Money by John Cortinez and Greg Balmer. Um, these two guys uh, went to Harvard to get their MBAs, um, and when they were at Harvard, they encountered uh, Jesus actually asking them to kind of change the trajectory of their lives, rather than just kind of earning as much as they could possibly earn, um, they felt like God calling them uh, to go on this journey of learning how to be stewards and to be generous and to live simply. And so uh, you'd, you'd be very interested in these two guys as they write this book, God of Money. And then the second book is Managing God's Money by Randy Alcorn. Some of you know that name, Randy Alcorn, but I found his book was so helpful in just walking through some biblical principles and um, core values when it comes to understanding uh, God's money. And so... Um, Anyway, and also, in, and I said this last week to Walnut Grove Campus, in the spirit of uh, money, talking about money, I do not know these people or their publishers, so I'm not receiving any kickback for endorsing <laughs> these books. I just want to let you know that if you're wondering. You're like, yeah, I bet he's getting some money for promoting those. No. So as we begin this four-week series, let's begin thinking about the generosity of our good God. So when you 
When we think about God, what is God like? A.W. Tozer once wrote, quote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So when you think about God, what words come to mind? Do the words giving, generous, lavish, do those words come to mind? Think of God's love seen in Jesus at the cross. Jesus who left the riches of heaven to suffer for us on the cross. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And Jesus, we come to you today and we want to be anchored upon that truth, the truth of the good news that you left the riches of heaven. You poured out this selfless love, this sacrificial love for us, that we would have the riches of your grace, the riches of your forgiveness, the riches of your mercy and freedom and new life. And so we stand here as your followers, just so wealthy because we have you. Wealthy in grace, wealthy in freedom, wealthy in love. And no matter how much we have in our bank account, Lord, we have you. You're our treasure. And we pray that in the coming weeks, you would free our hearts as we continue to think about your incredible generosity to us. Make us a generous people, we pray in your name. Amen. Is money good or bad? The American poet Carl Sandburg wrote, once wrote, quote, money is power, freedom, a cushion, the root of all evil, the sum of blessings. A few years ago when my kids were younger, uh, much younger, uh, Lucy was four, Ella was three, and Micah was just a baby, he was one. I asked Lucy and Ella a question. They were the only ones who could speak English. Uh, I said, is money good or bad? And here was their reply. Lucy said, it's good because we can send money to people who need it. It's kind, it's nice. Ella said, it's bad because Micah can choke on it. <laughs> I thought, yes, that's true. That's very true. It is bad. Now, I find that answer uh, cute, but also deeply, uh, deeply true, <laughs> right? <laughs> Money is good, it can be a tool for good things, beautiful things, but it's bad because people can choke on it. They are choking on it, right? Lucy and Ella are revealing two sides of the same coin, as it were, right? You're awake, that's good. Great good, great good can come from how we use money, and yet many are choking on it, right? The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and says this, and I'm going to read this slowly because I want this to sink in and hit us. In 1 Timothy 6, he says, those who want to get rich, pause. How many of us in the room are not this person, right? So I, I think he's saying everyone, right? Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap 
and into many foolish and harmful desires that, listen to this, plunge people into ruin and destruction. He's not pulling any punches here, right? For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Like, what a warning to us in our affluent age. Listen to that. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. I mean, so think of evil in the world. And what Paul's saying is that you might, if you kind of like whittled that back down or like followed the trail or the path, you might go like, how did this start? How did this war start? How did this conflict start? How did, you know, and you just like work it back, work back. Work. Oh, maybe at the very beginning, there was a little seed there of greed or a conflict around money. This love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, says Paul, eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves. Just think of that image, piercing themselves with many griefs. I want us to listen to one such story in the Bible. It's actually a tragedy. It's a tragic story that we're going to read, and we're going to be in Luke 18. So if you have your Bible, you can open it to Luke 18. Uh, We'll start in verse 18, and we'll just... It's a story of a rich, young, religious ruler. And we'll just read the first few verses. A certain ruler asked him, that's Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy. Okay, pause. Pause the story. Now, Jesus is confronted, or just, you know, he's in conversation with a rich, young, religious ruler. And some of you might be like, well, how do you know he was young? Well, we get that from the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew, the same story, we read that he's young. And the Greek word uh, points us to the fact that he's under the age of 40. This person's in their 20s or 30s. And they've made a lot of money. Made a lot of money. But they are also, they, or they see themselves as very spiritual, very religious. They follow the Old Testament. They, they follow the law, which is called the Torah. So they're Torah observant, very wealthy, under 40. And you can think of this guy as like what we all want to be. Right? Spiritual and rich. right? Spiritual and rich. You're like, wow, this guy's got his act together. He's doing well in life. But, and as you heard, he believes he's keeping the Torah. He's keeping the law. But Jesus knows something you and I don't know. It's the brilliance of Jesus. He's a good doctor. He can look deep into the heart and soul of this guy in a way you and I cannot. Now, I just want to pause and ask you, what kind of doctor do you want in your life? I think you want a doctor that tells you the truth, right? That's so uh, basic, I don't even need to say that, right? I don't even say that out loud. You want a doctor who tells you the truth. Uh, This is kind of a weird story, but I thought I had a mole growing on my nose. It was not a mole. It was basal cell carcinoma. It was cancer. And uh, and so I 
Uh, went to St. Paul's Hospital, got the cancer removed from my nose. But what would not have been nice is for the doctor, in, in order to kind of like, you know, not hurt my feelings, not tell me the truth of what that was, right? That's called cruelty. Right? We want the truth, doc. You know, give it to us straight. And what kind of doctor do you want for your soul? It's funny because we think we, think we want those kind of doctors who will tell us the truth, tell us exactly the treatment that we need. We want that in life. But when it comes to God and the great physician of our soul, we're, do we always appreciate that? Right? We don't always, I don't always appreciate that. But what if, what if I had something growing in my soul that needed to be cut out and removed? Like, what, what if I needed to go under the knife and, and for the great physician to, like, move in and cut something out of my soul, something growing, something cancerous to my soul? Right? Well, I'm not, sure. <laughs> I'm not sure that's what I want in my life, right? Like, what if it was the love of money? What if it was consumerism? What if it's greed? I want, ultimately, I think you and I ultimately want the kind of doctor that's willing to tell us the truth and willing to give us the treatment, the plan. What's the cure? How can I be free? How can I be healed? Here in the unseen places of the rich, young, religious ruler's heart, Jesus sees cancer growing. He sees the selfishness growing inside of him. And he knows it's got to get cut out, Right? He's got to cut it out. Now, the irony is this guy says he follows the law, right? But Jesus knows that's not true. Why? Because listen to the two first commandments that God gave to the people in the list of 10. If you're new to Jesus, you've probably heard of something called the 10 commandments. These were given hundreds of years before Jesus to a man named Moses. And these 10 commandments were incredibly important to God's people. But listen to the first two. Hear the first two. Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me. That's number one. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. The first two commands that God gives the people of Israel are centered on worship. Who are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? What is the thing that you have placed higher than any other thing in your life? And we're all like, God. <laughs> and God's like, not so fast, right? I'm not so sure if that's true. Tim Keller, who was a pastor in New York, he's, he's passed away. But he had a good uh, definition of an idol. So what is an idol? He says, it's a good thing that you and I have made an ultimate thing. See, a lot of idols, they're not bad. They're not bad things. Money is not bad. Money is a tool. But we've taken a good thing, and we have made it an ultimate thing in our life. And what does that mean? Well, an ultimate thing is a thing you go to for purpose. It's the thing you go to for hope. It's the thing you go to for breakthrough, for freedom, for comfort. It's that thing, whatever that thing is. God knows that when you and I place something in our life, and we don't even need to be talking about money, just anything, anything in our life, in that place, that high place, something that is not God, 
then we experience a deformation of the soul. Our soul is deformed. It's it's because so, you and I are trying to be formed by Christ, shaped by Christ, like a potter, right? Like a potter shapes the clay. But when you and I worship something that is not God, it leads to this deformation of the soul. And our life becomes out of line. And sometimes it's ever so slightly. It's unhealthy. And we won't be able to love God and love our neighbor the way we're supposed to. Listen to the Apostle Paul. He writes this. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, here we go, and greed, greed, which is idolatry. Greed, which is idolatry. Um, in the Christian church, we go to these, this verse, and we emphasize the sexual immorality part to this verse, right? And I'm not saying that's not important. Again, we've done teachings on this, impurity, lust, all of that, wanting to have a pure heart before the Lord, that's good. But you know, do we ever kind of trail off at the end of that sentence? <laughs> and greed, which is idolatry, right? Greed is idolatry. And Jesus sees this greed growing deep inside this man. And Jesus will challenge this rich young ruler to lay down his idols and to stop worshiping money. Verse 22, he says this. You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come. Follow me. If any of you in the room are kind of new to Jesus, new to the Bible, you have the great advantage of feeling for the first time the shock that this verse should create in you, <laughs> right? Uh, I, didn't, I didn't share the story last week, but it was funny. I was doing a Bible study with new Christians um, at my house, and <laughs> this guy was like, what, what, <laughs> and he's like, and we're in my house, and he goes, well, look at you, you haven't done this, <laughs> he totally calls me out, and I'm like, oh my goodness, okay, <laughs> he's like, well, I mean, help me understand this, right, like he, <laughs> he's so distraught, right? And I'm like, okay, this is good. I needed to feel that. I needed to feel, because when you and I grow up with this story, we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's going to tell him to give it all away, but just here's the deal. That doesn't apply to everybody. And like, <laughs> and then we just so say, right? That's what you and I already feel. But if you're new to Christianity, you're like, what is he saying? And so we, feel, we should feel that. Now, a good doctor has diagnosed the issue of this guy's soul, right? And this guy needs open heart surgery. And the way of healing will come as he detaches from his possessions and lives this life of generosity to the poor. Jesus knows this guy needs this. And just so you know, it is love. It really is love. Because um, we know in the, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10, um, we, we get this little additional phrase. Listen to this. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. It's love. Jesus is doing this because he loves the guy. Right? It doesn't feel like that to us, but he's doing it. You've got cancer growing inside of you that needs to be cut. This selfishness is growing. You need healing. I love you. Right? This, is, this is the posture of Jesus for this man. But the rich man walks away sad. Verse 23. 
When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. What a tragic sentence. Now, as I just mentioned, sometimes we as Christian teachers, in an effort to ease the discomfort, we quickly point out that it looks like Jesus doesn't seem to give this demand to every follower of his in the New Testament. So you kind of like look around and you're like, well, did he say this to anybody else? And we're like, oh, no, that's good. That's nice. So it's, the, it's contextual, right? It's just for this guy. And, and I think Jesus kind of, it, it's, it's the sense in which we, because we're, we're like this, we're like uptight. And we're like, ooh, okay. Like we need something to try to ease the discomfort we feel. But if we could together, let's remember the call of Jesus, right? It's nothing short of surrender. To follow Jesus is 100% surrender to him and his way. And the image of baptism is an image of death to our old life. It's a death. And it's a rebirth into a new life. And so what I would hate to do is to bring the bar down uh, in any way. Because I think you and I, rather than just kind of ease the discomfort and notice that he may not ask this of every disciple in the New Testament, maybe what you and I need to do is to actually come to Jesus and say, what do you want? Like with hands open, like, what do you want my life to look like? What should I be doing with my wallet, with my bank account? Like, and even the question is weird, my wallet, my bank account. Lord, what would you like to do with your wallet? with your bank account, with the money that you have so graciously given me to steward, how do you want me to use this, right, for your glory? So it's surrender. It's 100% surrender. And I, I don't know what God is going to ask you and I to do in the next few weeks. I hope you're open. I hope you and your friend, um, you and your spouse, you and your family, whoever you've come here with, that there's this sense of growing excitement to say, God, what, what would you ask of me? It can feel like fear too. <laughs> like, whoa, what's he going to ask of me? Right? But he loves you. And whatever he asks of me and of you, it's out of deep love for us. See, here's the deal. Being wealthy carries with it a spiritual danger. A spiritual danger. And we're wealthy. But we don't think we are. We're wealthy. The Urban Dictionary defines a rich person in this way. Rich person, someone with a lot more money than you. Right? Now, I think that's very accurate because I think if I were to ask you if you're rich, some of you would be like, yeah, no, I, for sure, I am. Uh, but some of you would be like, I'm totally not rich. Like, I've got this cousin. You should see their house, right? Or like, I've got this friend, honestly, he has a boat. You know, only rich people have boats and or whatever. Right. Just, you know, if you're you might be here, you might be the exception to that, you know, poor and a boat, maybe. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's like rich person is always someone who has more than us because it's like we're all, you know, it's like we all don't notice it, but we're all increasing our standard of living. Right. Do you remember like 15 to 20 years ago? Maybe some of you don't, but 15 to 20 years ago when people used to mock Starbucks, right? They're like, I am not paying $3 for a latte, 
you know? Like, I would never do that, right? I make my coffee at home, and I, 99% of those people are drinking multiple Starbucks every week, right? And why? Because it's now just part, it's what we do, right? It's, this, it's a standard that we've set, and we've all kind of done this together. The, the, you know, it's kind of gone up together, right? And when we look around, we compare ourselves, you know, with the Joneses, as it were, and we don't look like we're rich. But when we think, and, and yes, you and I are aware that around the world, so many do not have what you and I have. So when we look at the globe, when we look around the world, you, you and I are living in a very wealthy part of the world. We just are. And I'm not sure how pastors around the world preach this in their congregations in sub-Saharan Africa, right? Or in, you know, house churches in China. Like, I don't know how this is preached, but, but I sense a need to preach this a certain way here amongst us. Yes, inflation is high. Yes, mortgage rates have gone through the roof. Yes, this cost of living, you and I are experiencing this. So we have a really unique thing that we're dealing with. And I think the Holy Spirit, no, I think, I know the Holy Spirit knows this about us. He knows what we're living through. He knows the stress. He knows what you're going through, right? And, and, and he also knows that we live in a place that is simply wealthy. And even though if we have a dollar in our bank account, look at what we have. We have free health care. We've got free education for children. We've got the general safety of our cities. We've got job opportunities. We have grocery stores filled with food. Just think about this, this little piece alone. Even if you have a dollar in your bank account, one dollar, right? You and I have access to clean water. We have access to clean water. I was just in, in uh, West Africa this last year and watching the work that Christians are doing in, in digging wells for those who, just, just that, just that alone. They would give so much to be able to turn on a tap and drink the water. Right? You and I have so much. We have so much to be thankful for. We are the wealthy of the world. And I know it's hard to believe. Um, as a kid, when I was growing up in a missionary family, I, uh, my parents were missionaries in South America, so I spent seven years of my childhood in South America. And um, when we'd come back to, my, I'm American, so my parents in the United States. So when I came back to the United States, I would look around and I would see the kinds of homes my friends had and the cars that they had and the vacations that they would take. And, um, and I always watched how much my parents sacrificed for my brother and I financially. And I always, but I always thought we were like, we were the poor family, right? We were the, we were the family that didn't have. When I compared myself with, with others, and even though I'm grateful for that upbringing, I think that, that image of people always being wealthier than me um, has stuck with me, right? And as an apprentice of Jesus, the first step for Matthew is to realize, hold on, hold on. You, you live in a wealthy place. You have access to so much. And so, Matthew, how are you going to steward this? And it's not about always comparing with other people. Like, how are you going to use what I've given you? Because being wealthy carries with it a spiritual danger. Listen to Jesus. He says this, Luke 18, 
24 to 26. He says, Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? That's a, that's a weird reply to that. Who then can be saved? Why are they saying that? Because in Jesus' day, the idea is that if you had money, if you, if you had wealth, you were blessed by God. God was like, oh, I like you, right? Here's some money. And the idea is if you're wealthy, you're like, okay, I'm doing quite well. God loves me. He's blessed me. So when the disciples hear Jesus say this, that it's nearly impossible for rich people to enter the kingdom of God, they're like, well, if the rich can't, if the people that God is blessing with finances can't get in, how are any of us, the poor, who are still waiting to maybe be religious enough to get blessed, how are we going to get in, right? Do you, see, do you see their worldview? And what is Jesus doing? He's flipping this whole thing around. He's flipping the whole thing around. And he actually, and this is more to say than I should right now, but like in, in Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about coming poor before the Lord. It's coming empty. It's coming open. It's because the poor or those who are poor in spirit come absolutely dependent. And God's like, ah, I could work with these people because these people are empty, right? And they're flexible and they're ready to be dependent upon me and my love, right? So this is what the, this is what the disciples are struggling with. So when Jesus says it's, it, so he says here, he says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's this immense camel crawling through the smallest man-made hole, right? The eye of a needle. Right? Like it's, it's, it's an image of something impossible. Being wealthy carries with it this spiritual danger because you and I might miss the kingdom. We might miss our healing. We might miss the chance to receive the greatest love the world has ever known, right? We might miss a relationship with the living God, right? When we're wealthy, we're tempted to forget God. When God described his relationship with his own people in the Old Testament, he said this. This is such a profound verse. He said this. When I fed them, that's God feeding Israel, right? When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. Can we just keep that up there just for a second? When we get satisfied, we become proud. What is that about? Oh, I did this. Yeah, I started the company, right? Yeah, I put in the hours. I, you know, oh, all of a sudden, this is all about you. <laughs> became, became proud. And then they forgot me. They forgot me, says God. They have no need for me anymore. And, and we think about this on a macro level. Why is it in that places around the world that are poorer? We're seeing, we're seeing today, did you know this? I hope this gets you excited. A surge of church planting, of people becoming Christians in poorer places in the world. Because the poor are receiving the gift of the kingdom. And in places like North America and Europe, they forgot me, right? They forgot me. And some of you remember actually the faith of your grandparents, right? 
maybe some of your parents, maybe some of your grandparents, great-grandparents, and you remember what they lived through as they lived through persecution, as they lived through wars, as they lived through the Great Depression, right? Well, what were they doing? They were clinging to God, right? Because they knew they, they, knew they couldn't forget the God that loved them and that would provide for them and that would care for them and that give them daily bread. But all it takes is one generation to forget God. It just takes one, right? And then all of a sudden, we're no, we're no longer dependent. We're sitting in our homes with our cars, and they forgot me. It's a tragic verse. Are you and I in danger of forgetting God? Forgetting that he, of course, made the world, made our bodies, gave us abilities, gave us opportunities. And if we have earned anything, it is all thanks to him. Listen to C.S. Lewis. He says, quote, One of the dangers of having a lot of money is that you may be quite satisfied with the kinds of happiness money can give and so fail to realize your need for God. If everything seems to come simply by signing checks, you may forget that you are at every moment totally dependent on God. Thankful to Caleb and the worship team singing this song. I depend on you. Right? I, I, I depend on you. I'm coming dependent. I, Matthew is in danger. It's such danger of forgetting that I am, at every moment, totally dependent on God. Now, remember Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God in the story. Do you remember that little line? Okay, let's, let's throw some hope in here. Because <laughs> this might be feeling a little bleak. Let's throw some hope, Okay. What is impossible with man is possible with God. With God. Keywords. So Jesus is giving a little bit of hope, right? He's like, yeah, that image of a camel going through an eye of an needle, it seems impossible, but let me just give you a little bit of hope. Camels can go through the eyes of needles, <laughs> right? It is possible. It is possible. If you will, let's do a little experiment. Hold your Bible out. Those of you who brought paper Bibles, uh, hold your Bible out. Take your finger and flip one page, right? So if I was you, just one page to chapter 19. What is the first story? Name me the key character in the first story of chapter 19. Shout it out. Zacchaeus. Ah. A wealthy guy who is saved, right? Camels go through eyes of needles (laughs) with God. The wealthy can experience salvation. If you don't know this story, it's, a, it's an incredible story of this wealthy tax collector who is so, he has stolen from people. He's done some bad stuff. He's taken money in, in not good ways. Jesus comes and he eats with him. And he's so overwhelmed by the love of Jesus. Listen to what happens. Luke 19, verses 8 to 10. But Zacchaeus, so he's at a meal, right? He stood up. And said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. But the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Camel through the eye of a needle, right? It's, it is possible to enter the kingdom of God if you're wealthy. But it requires total surrender, 
We must surrender our finances to the will of the king. Notice the difference. And just so you know, when I was preparing this message, I didn't realize how close those two stories were. Right? That's so close. It's just a flip the page. Right? And we end up so discouraged, <laughs> the rich young ruler. But we flip it and we go, ah, ah it's an ancient Scrooge. Right? <laughs> right? A wealthy guy. Which is, I think, what we're supposed to feel. See Zacchaeus prancing through the streets, right, on Christmas morning, as it were, giving gifts, making it right with all the people that he's hurt and cheated. Where do we think Dickens got this idea of Scrooge, right? Probably from Zacchaeus. This is, this is the imagination, this, this is the kind of joy that we are supposed to imagine that is ours, the wealthy, that we can have this joy but we must surrender. And the question you and I have to ask is, am I the rich young ruler or am I Zacchaeus? So in the next few weeks, what will the Spirit of God do in you? Will you and I, and we'd never say this this way, but would we, are we going to walk away sad in fear of what God might ask of us? Or will we experience the joy of a life that's been turned around and changed. Zacchaeus. Which one are you? Which one am I? Uh, it was really interesting. Uh, when I was preparing this message a couple weeks ago, um, my son Micah, he's, um, he's eight years old. And uh, he came down the stairs, and he was holding all of his money that he had saved in his piggy bank. And... Um, it was $66, and then he found four other dollars, and it was $70, and he said, I want to give all of this to the church, right? And just so you know, my kids are normal kids, right? <laughs> so this, is, this is not a moment, like my I mean, sugar, uh, high emotion, uh, fighting. So I'm just telling you, this is not like, oh, what a nice, kind story the pastor tells of his children. It's like, my kids are normal children. So this was like, I mean, they fight over money, right? It's like, you stole my $20, right? You hear that in the house. And so I'm like, okay. So when he came down the stairs and he did this, I was like, whoa, well, that's really cool. But I didn't, sorry, I didn't know it was all of his money. So he said, and I said, how much is this? And then he had said, well, $66. And then he found four other dollars. And, and, and I said, oh, like, is this all your money? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, buddy. Look, okay, so let's talk. Like, you don't have to give all your money to the church. Like, like, let's talk about, like, are you sure you want to give it all? Like, maybe just part? And I started to talk to him about this. And then I realized what I was preaching on, right? <laughs> I was literally working on this sermon <laughs> where Jesus asked a guy to give all of his possessions. And I'm trying to tell my son, who's eight, you don't have to do that, <laughs> right? I was just like, anyway, so, so actually, so Randy Alcorn, that book I gave you, Managing God's Money, he says, don't ever discourage a child from giving. Let them give. Let, I mean, they're in the safety of your home. Let them experiment with generosity. Let them try it out, right? Um, and now's the time to just allow them to experiment. And so, anyway... Um, he brought his little Ziploc back to church last Sunday and, you know, dropped it in. And, but I was convicted of my own response to that, right? So as we begin this series, I want to ask, where is the love of money evident 
in our life. So this is where we're going to begin to land the plane here. Where is the love of money evident in our life? I want to give you four little tests that you could take in your mind, you know, little quizzes. Um, one is the envy test, the anxiety test, the therapy test, and the frugality test. So here we go. Take the envy test. Scroll through your mind and think, how often am I dreaming of someone else's home? How often am I dreaming of someone else's toys? Of someone else's backyard? Of someone else's vacation home? Or of the vacation itself? So we allow the Holy Spirit to kind of just check our heart. How often do we spend thinking about those things? Number two, take the anxiety test. And this is something I've dealt with in my life. Think about your heart rate and your breathing when it comes to fears around paying bills, around making ends meet, around rising debt. You know God loves you so much, right? As we take the, the anxiety test, what if God's calling you and I to simplify, right? to downsize, to live on less, to experience a freedom from debt, right? He loves you. Take the therapy test. In what way has spending become therapy to you? A way of dealing with emotions, of remaining in control. Like it's the one way you can still control things. Or maybe it's a way of escaping real life. It's an escape. Number four, take the frugality test. See, oftentimes we think of the word frugal and we're like, oh, that's always good. It can be good. It can be good. But when has frugality led to become a miser? Where does frugality lead to judgmentalism? Where does frugality lead to hoarding? Of trying to remain in control, right? Has frugality led to frustration in any of your relationships? Right? Because judgmentalism is a real thing. See, our frugality can easily become pride and it can easily lead us to a scarcity mindset where we just have to cling to what we have, right? Frugality can lead to this judgmentalism of others. So it's, it's not just the frivolous that have money problems, right? All of us who are frivolous, we have some issues we've got to deal with. But the frugal can have a different shape and form of money problems. So we're all in this together. None of us are off the hook. So let's ask, where is the love of money evident in our life? Where is it evident in our life? Because you and I, each of us, need just a little bit more, right, to be okay. And if that's what you're feeling, if you've, if you've been sensing, like I have sensed many times in life, like, Lord, the answer to my problem is just a little bit more. Some of you will remember the story of John Rockefeller, right? 
John Rockefeller, the founder of the Standard Oil Company, one of the most wealthy men of the modern world, was once famously asked, how much is enough? And he responded, just a little bit more, right? I think for any of us who feel like, actually, if I'm honest, that's my hope. I'm not so sure about <laughs> opening up my life to Jesus, surrendering to Jesus. My hope is that. All my hope is there. If you're in that place, thank you for your honesty. <laughs> I'm excited to see what Jesus is going to cultivate in you in the coming weeks. Because he wants to lead us to joy. Maybe life will look a bit simpler. Maybe things will become downsized, right? But maybe you and I will start to experience giving and generosity, and it'll become contagious, and we'll sense a nearness and a joy in Jesus. What if our prayer could be this? These words from Be Thou My Vision. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. What if we could start praying that? And if Jesus could become our treasure, and if the Holy Spirit would loosen the trust and hope we've placed in finances and do a work of freedom in us, what if our hands could literally open up and everything God has given us be seen as a gift. I think Ron last week had you hold up a fist and then let go. Do you guys remember that last week? Is that what he did? He did not. Do you remember? You weren't here. Okay. Someone else. <laughs> Just kidding. Anyway, did he do that with you guys last week? He did not. Okay. All right. So he's doing something different at Walnut Grove today. All right. Well, that's what we're going to do right now. We're going we're gonna to practice this. And... Um, uh, before we do this, before we just kind of open up our hands as a, as a posture of surrender, I just want to say two quick things. On Sunday evening, as you heard Kevin say, we have a financial workshop. I know that sometimes you're like, yeah, but like, we need details. How do we walk through this? want to let you know that we have this workshop coming up February 4th, Kingdom Finances, Money in the Hands of an Apprentice of Jesus, right? This might be those, that place where you start to get into the details of spreadsheets and stuff like that, right? It's going to be great. Um, we're also at our Walnut Grove campus, and maybe, I'm just throwing it out there from stage, maybe one day at the Alder Grove campus, having a, 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 a course on money in the future, like a practical course that people could take, like the marriage course or like Alpha. And so, um, but, but as we come to Jesus here at the end, our hope is that he will untangle the knots in our life and begin to give us this freedom. So could we stand together? I'm gonna to ask us to stand. There's a lot to think about, but we wanna make it simple here. And as we end, I'm gonna ask us to pray here. But before we pray, uh, I'm grateful to Tim Keller who also pointed out something fascinating that Jesus himself was the rich, young, religious ruler. Why? He was the one who fulfilled the Torah perfectly, and he had all the wealth of the heavens. And he gave up all the wealth to come suffer and die. He became poor, that you and I might become rich in his grace. 
And so Jesus, when he asked the rich young ruler to do this, he's not asking him to do something Jesus was unwilling to do himself. And so we receive the good news, the gospel, right? That he shed his blood for us, gave up everything to have us as his treasured possession. So if you would, if you are open to it, would you close your eyes in prayer? I know some of you are new to Jesus, and so you can just listen in on this. But for all of us who follow Jesus, we close our eyes. And if you could picture your hands right now, just maybe if you want to do this, your hands are clenched like fists. And if you kind of have your hands out in front of you as fists, I'm just going to let you in your own timing open up your hands. And as you open up your hands, there's nothing magical or weird about this. This is just simply a demonstration of surrender. The closed fist is an image of control, of possession. But an open hand is an image of surrender. And I'm going to start to pray, and I'm just going to allow you, whenever you're ready, to open up those fists and to say, Jesus, I surrender. I surrender. Wherever this journey takes, I'm ready. Wherever you want to lead me, when it comes to stewardship, generosity, I'm ready. Okay? So we'll pray here. I also want to let you know our prayer team is going to be available to pray as we worship here on the sides. As we deal with fears around money, right? They're here, they're ready to walk with us and pray with us. But Lord Jesus, you see us here, your people. And our hands here are in fists, closed. And Lord, I pray that as you begin to speak to us as we worship, and as we pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage to open up these hands in surrender to you. Lord, as you open up our hands here, we want to let go. God, in my own life, I've been afraid that you weren't going to take care of me. My deepest fear was that you wouldn't take care of me, and so I need to cling to everything I have. But I want to hear the good news over and over and over again, and I want to trust you for daily bread, for provision. I depend on you. So Aldergrove Campus, whenever you're ready, just open up those hands. And Jesus, we come to you as a people who are surrendered before you. We love you. Amen.